0: Everybody's got a worksheet for tonight, or not enough worksheets out there? Everybody got one? All right, good, good. It's a a doozy this week, (laughs) five-pager, big one. Well, we are going to address a topic that... Is not going to be too controversial at first, but then there's the second half, which it may be. So I'd like to encourage you to please uh, keep an open mind, listen all the way through and keep thinking, uh, because we want to make sure that the topics of our day are viewed biblically. Uh, I know there's a lot of sentiment out there and a lot of emotion, a lot of differing views, but we need to make sure that we stay biblical Otherwise, things can get uh, dicey real quick. Uh, Opening statement, God has blessed the United States with a unique, successful, and biblically founded system of government, won by the sweat and blood of thinkers, warriors, and patriots. Sadly, mankind's sinful propensity to control and pervert the blessings of God will always bring conflict and heartache. So, what is an obedient child of God to do? Simple answer, we stand with God. Now, is that going to be easy? No, it's not. So as we go through tonight, again, um, this is a a difficult topic. Um, <laughs> Thirty years ago, it would not have been this difficult. But throughout the past two weeks, uh, I've been studying, reading, praying, and I want to approach this very seriously and very carefully And, uh, again, encourage you just to to hear it all the way out, but to keep thinking. And uh, I'm sure it's probably going to bring up some questions, some other topics, and fine. Uh, That's great. Um, But I've not completely 100% settled on everything yet. I still want to listen to the Lord, and, and a lot of that comes through talking with God's people as well. You dig into God's Word, you grab the principles, and... I appreciate being able to sit down and dialogue with other mature Christians who have thought about this, who have uh, various questions as well, because it helps round out how we view things. Uh, I'll be sharing a a book with you later that, uh, who was the dad that gave you that book? Tom Lancaster. Tom Lancaster passed a book on to my father who read it, who passed it on to Andrew who read it, and then I got it, and when I went through it, I thought, ooh, here's a powder keg. But it added a lot of uh, intellectual stimulation, if nothing else, but uh, we're going to be looking at some of those things at the end of of our lesson. So we'll get through what we can. I don't want to rush it, but there are a lot of different soapboxes we could sit on for a while Our doctrinal statement specifically for First Baptist Church says in regards to the the topic of civil government, we believe that God has ordained and created all authority consisting of three basic institutions, the home, the church, and the state. Every person is subject to these authorities, but all, including the authorities themselves, are answerable to God and governed by his word. Amen to that. God has given each institution specific biblical responsibilities and balanced those responsibilities with the understanding that no institution has the right to infringe upon the other. The home, the church, and the state are equal and sovereign in their respective biblically assigned sphere of responsibility under God. And it gives five different passages there. Uh, we're going to look into those passages and elaborate. Uh, many of them are not... Difficult, they're very familiar, but we need to look at some of the details because there are popular opinions out there that will skew some of these perspectives. So looking down uh, on our sheet, God has ordained and created, these are the easy ones, three main authority structures, so your first blanks should be pretty easy. The home, the church, and the state, with a cute little picture that goes with it. Looking at those different spheres, uh, some have even said there's a fourth area, which would be personal responsibility. That's pretty credible, okay? Um, You could possibly stick that under the home. It's just if you're single, you are your own home. You just don't have a spouse. You don't have kids yet. So you could debate back and forth. I think both are correct. Not a big deal. So there is personal responsibility, but there's also home, church, and state. Three very clear authoritative structures every single one of us have experience with and are underneath. So, looking at it simply like that, what is the duty of our human authorities? This is pretty crucial. It's very simple, but as soon as one of these spheres steps outside of their God-given responsibilities, that's where you've got problems starting. So, the home's responsibility is to teach and exemplify the truth of God, uh, De- De- Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 9, uh, is my go to for looking at the responsibilities of the home. So let me read those to you quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says this And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. When thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. So, in every area of the home, God is supposed to be preeminent in control, and that is the basis for then passing that on to your kids. Now, can you make your kids be born-again Christians? No, you cannot. A parent's responsibility is to do their very best to teach and exemplify those things. But to think as a parent that you can force your kids to be a Christian is is a problem, because that would remove that child's own ability to make their choices, their God-given free will. So a parent sets them up for success, but it's up for that child to respond to that properly. But the home structure is designed to do that. Second one, the church's responsibility is to tirelessly watch over the souls of men. Hebrews 13 sets us up for this concept, and verse 7 and verse 17 both give details that come together. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says this, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, of of their lifestyle, of their testimony of living for God. Now you look down at verse 17, and it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. The word watch there is... Uh, commonly used as a, as a descriptive word, to be vigilant, to not fall asleep, to be constantly looking. So as you take that in context of this verse, you are t- uh, the church is to be on guard, to be vigilantly watching for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. So it's the responsibility of the church, it's leadership, it's structure to look out after you, to help guard and teach you and train you and protect you from all the craziness that's in this world. And they are, have a responsibility. I have a responsibility before God. And I'm going to stand in front of God someday and God's going to judge me based on how I not only did personally, not only how I did as a husband and as a father in my own home, but another layer of how did I take care of First Baptist Church whether that be as a youth pastor or a head pastor. And folks, I take that seriously, very seriously. But you have to understand the structure that you and I are both under. And that is it exactly. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. So as we are a church together, and I am to lead with responsibility and you are to follow that lead, you want to do it in such a way where it's not a pain in the butt to me. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, that I may be able to do it with joy and not with grief, that's unprofitable for you because nobody likes a grumpy pastor, right? But this all works together profitably, and God gives us this structure within the church. Now the state, and that's where we're supposed to be focusing, talking about civil government, the state's responsibility, as it says in Romans 13, 3, and 4, it also says in 1 Peter 2, 14, is to punish evil and reward good. So after you get those blanks filled in, I encourage you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Romans 13 because there are a number of verses in this passage that need to be examined in detail. Specifically Romans 13, we can roll down to verse 3 and verse 4 because they are very clear on this aspect of the topic. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath. Upon him that doeth evil. The main word in that whole concept is justice. A society without justice, justice is a society that falls apart. We are literally watching that happen right now in the United States. There is such a massive hole where justice should be. There are people doing wrong and are not being dealt with. There are people doing right who are not being supported. And because of that, the fabric of our society is unfurling. That's a problem. Because God said, he has ordained that government is supposed to hold the sword for a purpose. Protect the innocent, uphold those that are doing right, and punish and eradicate those who are doing evil. Very simple, very clear. But that's pivotal. So as soon as a government steps outside of those bounds, as soon as a church steps out of its God-given bounds, as soon as a home steps outside of God's design, there are going to be problems. So understanding that foundation of the duty of human authority is where we must begin. Now, those are those in the position with those responsibilities. Now, what about those of us that maybe are not a government leader or a church leader or the head of our home? although most of you guys are <laughs> the head of your homes, Again, it's very simple but very crucial. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, also in Ephesians 6, 1, which most of us as parents could probably quote, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, we are to, number one, submit to the rule over us, whether that be the home, as it says, Ephesians 2, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, verse 22, turn there quickly, which says, wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. and He is a savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So there's a structure at home. There's also a structure at church. We already read the verses from Hebrews 13, 7 through 17, which said that the, the church authorities have that responsibility for God, but also that the church as a whole needs to submit to that leading. And then we see also in Romans 13, where we're at, and in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, the government also has responsibilities of carrying out justice, and all these other things, so we are to submit to those authorities. I'd like to say that's easy. Uh, those who think that's easy, I fear, are not thinking for themselves, which is a very dangerous place to be. But besides submitting to the authorities God's given over us, we also need to pray for our leaders. First Timothy 2, 1 through 3 is very clear on this aspect. And it's one that we all amen and we agree with, but I really wonder how often we do it, except for maybe something big is coming down the pipe for voting, or there's a problem, or we have an election, all of a sudden, boom, we're hitting our knees in prayer, but Paul admonishes Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, I exhort therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God wants us to be able to live a good, productive life in this country, in this time. But that involves us hitting our knees for our elected officials. And I will be the first to admit, I do not do that on a regular basis. So each Wednesday when when Pastor gets up here and and gives us the, the government official for the week, I just really gloss over it fast, and I need to stop, and I need to take that section just as seriously as I do those of us who are sick or going through personal issues or family members going through surgery or what have you. This is crucial because our officials desperately need the working of God in their lives, which means we need to back that up and do what God says we're supposed to do, which is pray. So whether you are the authority or you are under said authority, we know our roles, because the Bible is very, very clear on what those roles are. So moving on to page 52, our next page, here are the foundational truths of human authority. These are not just the job descriptions, but these are the philosophies and the principles behind being able to use that authority, which again, is extremely important. So we're back in Romans chapter 13, and you should be able to stay there for uh, the rest of our time. We'll be referring to different verses. Three basic principles. As long as these are remembered, then we'll know how to proceed, whether that be following authority or the authority itself. Number one, when it says in Romans 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The reason they have their position, the reason they have authority, is because all authority is delegated by God. That's your first blank. It comes from him. That's why they've got it. For us to be very callous and very flippant about, I'm not doing that, you better be careful because that is God's authority given to that person. I mean, we, we get a little upset as husbands if our wives say, forget you, hubby, I'm going to do what I want. Like, hold on a second, now I've got authority from God, I'm supposed to lead this home, you're supposed to follow. Uh, we get real upset when our kids say, don't care what you say, do what I want, see you on the weekend. No, that does not fly in my home. I'm the God established authority in my home. Well, what about government? God put them there. And we are still subject to their authority because it comes from God. That's our side. The government's supposed to know that too, though. The authority they have is not because they are the government. The authority they have is because it's been given to them by God. Now, how many governments actually acknowledge that? (laughs) Probably not many. Um, And that's where the problems lie. But the truth is still the truth. The more people that recognize it, the better off we're going to be to work through our issues. But at least we know where it's at. So even if they don't handle their authority properly, at least I know where I'm supposed to stand. Their authority does come from God. Second point, or second truth, is all authority is therefore accountable to God. And that's the scary thing if you hold a place of authority. Some people love that power trip, they love the ability to say, hey, you got to do what you're told. But the scary side of authority is that you are accountable. And that's what I wish more people in our society understood about the marital balance. It's like, well, a woman shouldn't have to submit to a man just because they're married. Okay, now hold on. Look at this imbalance. He is now ultimately responsible for what happens in your family. That's actually kind of intimidating. You want to call the shots? Well, you need that accountability aspect to balance the humility and the wisdom of what you're saying And that's scary. I kind of got shocked a little bit. When I was in college, I was sitting uh, around a a group of other students. And uh, one of the the girls there, I don't know what year she was, but what she was saying, she had a lot of wisdom to her. She's like, Man, I I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be the one in control of my family someday. And all the other girls kind of looked at her funny. And she's like, That's kind of scary because that means if we're in trouble. It'd be my fault, but it's my husband, so I'm going to do what he says, so that way I can duck when God smacks him. He goes, you know, he's the one that gets creamed for stuff that goes wrong. I was like, okay. <laughs> it, it made me reevaluate the role of responsibility and authority. You know, that was kind of a strange way to go about it, but she had a point uh, to a degree. So accountability is really big. And you can't have accountability unless there is a set standard to go by. And that is why government is held accountable by God's word. God ultimately, but he has given us the game plan. He has given us the guidelines, the manual, everything. So we as a people, as nations, are still governed by God's holy word. Now, again, a lot of people don't recognize that. Now, Just because you don't recognize it doesn't mean you're not going to be held accountable to it. You are. This is a big deal. Governmental systems can vary, and they do vary greatly. If you look at our own system of government, it is called the grand experiment, because no other nation has ever done anything like the United States has done, that we've got three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. The legislative making the laws, the executive signing and vetoing laws, basically making sure they're supposed to be enacted properly. And then you've got the judicial, that whenever there comes up a a controversy or a question, they look at the letter of the law and say, this is what the law says, and compare the issue to what has been said. Anytime these branches step outside those guidelines, there are problems. So instead of the judicial branch saying, well, the Constitution says this, and the law in comparison, that's our ruling. Well, now all of a sudden the the Constitution is supposed to be a living document where we get to change and interpret according to the thoughts of the day. Judicial branch, that's not your job. The Constitution says what it says. You stick with it and uphold it. The executive branch, well, you're supposed to make sure laws are being enacted properly. But presently, our executive branch is writing law by fiat, executive order. That's not their job. That's not lawful according to our system of government. The legislative branch, they just sit there and argue about the laws that they want or don't want, to have to enact. It, it doesn't make sense. They, they can't move forward because nobody has the same goal anymore for the good of the American people. So these three branches are really, really struggling. And because of that, our entire nation is struggling. But again, it's understanding those basic principles. Like maybe that principle says the purpose of our government is to protect its people, not provide for them. How many people nowadays think as soon as we get in trouble, the government's supposed to rush in and meet these needs? Folks, that's not the design of our government, although it's become that. And evil people are always going to use those things to control people. That's why our founding fathers set up what they did, is to keep control out of the hands of tyrants, They broke away from a tyrannical government and wanted to set things up in such a way that that power would not easily fall back into the hands of said tyrants. Well, it's happening again in many different ways, and it's because of the breakdown of the design of our government. Getting back to our notes, the bottom line is how each system utilizes and or submits to the authority, the duties, and the moral limitations prescribed by God. If the moral standard of God's word was not applied to every man and every government, well, mankind would be left to create his own methods and standards. And that would create a situation where God would have no just grounds on which to judge man. How could God righteously judge a people when he's not told them what he's going to judge them on? That wouldn't make sense. But God has laid out his word, the moral principles and stands for all men to see. And I don't care if you're a government of socialism, of communism, a a dictatorship, a kingship, or a constitutional republic. All mankind is governed by the laws of God. Now, those systems of government are going to vary. And that's fine. God allows variation within governments. But this is the set standard that keeps them all on track. So as soon as a nation walks away from God's word being that moral standard, they've walked off a cliff or a slippery slope or however you'd like to describe it. So our next principle is that each authority is balanced. So we look at the home, we look at the church, we look at the state. Each one of these authority structures is not supposed to go outside of its limitations, outside of its design, and infringe on others. Our founding fathers understood that this is easily done. And so they put within the Constitution, within the amendments, very clear stipulations, like, I don't know, the First Amendment... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So that was to keep religion out of the government? No, it was to keep government from messing with churches. The government's guideline was you do not establish a national religion. That's what everybody did in Europe. That's what so many of the colonies tried to do. And it did nothing but cause division and persecution And some of the founding fathers were so adamant about this, the rest wanted to pull their hair out. But they said, no, you don't even make the Baptist the national religion. You keep it open for everybody, full religious freedom. And when our government wisely, finally settled upon that, they put that in Article Number One, Amendment Number One. Congress is not going to establish a national religion. Or, it continues, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we're not going to prohibit you from exercising your religion, and we're not going to set up a national religion. Folks, that is clear. I mean, we don't speak like the Founding Fathers spoke back then, but they still wrote things out pretty clearly. It's not going to happen. But it's been happening. Of course, our uh, nation is all about free speech and freedom to do as you believe and as you think unless you're holding to the truth. Then you're silenced. Then you're prohibited. First Amendment continues, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. There's a lot said in that First Amendment, and so much of this is not being upheld with balance and integrity. So we see that our founding fathers were trying to do this very thing and protect each one of the authorities, the home, the state, and the church, from infringing upon each other. Because the home, state, and church are sovereign in their individual sphere of responsibility. So when instituted properly, and that's your next word, your next blank, When instituted properly, each complements and protects the other. So you could be in your home worshiping the Lord as your conscience dictates, and the state is supposed to protect your ability to do so because evil people always want to grab control and prohibit others so that they can be the one in charge. The government is supposed to protect you from that. And the church is supposed to be there to protect the home. And the church, if they're teaching their people properly, are cranking out some of the best citizens yet, which protects the state. And then vice versa, all these different authorities should be working in harmony to protect each other. But again, evil hearts want to seize control, and that's going to twist the design of God, ruin that ability to protect each other, the ability to function well, So up until this point, folks, I really doubt that any of us has come against anything that is too controversial. This is clearly what the Word of God says is supposed to be as far as government is concerned. Know your job. Do your job. All these realms of influence will protect each other and life is gold. (laughs) But because we're sinners, life is never gold, okay? These things are always... Uh, a struggle, and that is why the the wisdom of our our founding fathers just continually baffles me. It seems like I see new layers of protection that they tried to bake into the system to keep us from messing ourselves up. Even the the process of the Electoral College or the, the process of passing a new bill, everything is designed to slow down, have lots of agreement, lots of checks and balances, but all of those things are being attacked. So it brings us to a quandary, a, a difficult position. And this is where things may get a little more controversial. So again, I just ask that you, you hear things out. What is a Christian to do when his or her government becomes ungodly? Does the verse Romans thirteen two forbid a believer from resisting their God-given governmental authority? You ask different Christians this question, you're going to get different answers. The verse itself says, Romans 13, 2, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or just judgment. Okay? That is pretty clear. But the more I look through every aspect of Romans thirteen, one through 7, I see that God gave very clear guidelines to that government. So am I supposed to follow a government when it steps outside of its God-given boundaries and is doing evil? Well, I have to obey my government. Now Hold on a second. Who is our ultimate authority? It's God. So God did not intend, Romans 13, to turn every believer into an absolute subject of the state that we just do whatever we're told because the state said so. No, our ultimate authority is God and we have to think, we have to follow the the laws that God has written first and foremost. And as long as our government is doing this prescribed job to uphold right and put down evil, I'm supposed to be the best citizen on the planet. But that's where you and I need to do some hardcore thinking, folks. Some biblical thinking, because to walk this road means we're going to come to some very, very difficult conclusions. So, Brother Lancaster suggested a book to my father called "The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates," which does not exactly sound like a page turner. All right, a guy that wrote is Matthew J. Trujilla, who's actually a pastor up in uh, is it Michigan or Wisconsin here. Oh, well. So I did a little research on uh, Pastor Trujillo, and I do not espouse everything this guy holds to. Just just that caveat out there. Um, he says you shouldn't pay property taxes, which I think is probably a really bad idea. Um, he has 11 kids, so he's really not in there for birth control in any form. That's totally his view. That's fine. That's up to him. Um, he's also very, very active in... Uh, anti-abortion rallies, and uh, he's very, very active in politics and things like that. So reading up about the author, all right, this guy is hardcore in what he believes, which I respect. I don't agree with everything that he does or says, but I do respect his ability to say, you know what, this is what I believe, and I'm going with it full tilt. So in that respect, uh, just a little balance there as far as the book goes, or I'm sorry, as far as its author goes, but the book was downright challenging. What he specifically addresses about government has, for the last two weeks, had my head spinning. Um, I would recommend reading it. I would just ask that you would do it with biblical care and discernment. So we're going to go through some of the things that he proposes in his book. And the first and foremost is the principle of as the title says, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. So in his own words, here's the the blanks for your next section here. When the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower-ranking civil authority has both a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. Those are pretty bold words, folks. So you've got a a system of authorities, as we do in our government, from the, the policeman all the way up to the president. If somebody along the way says, this is now law, this is what you are to do, but that ruling goes against the very rules of God. Pastor Trujillo is saying that anybody below that individual should recognize that breaks a law of God, that breaks a moral or ethical law, that even goes against the laws of our land, the Constitution. I cannot uphold that law, and I refuse to obey it. I refuse to make anybody below me obey it. That makes sense but those are dangerous words. In fact, they were so dangerous that our founding fathers put their lives and their livelihood on the line to make such a stand before the English government. So I'm looking at these principles like, man alive, if we were to actually do that nowadays, what would happen? But then I got to thinking, what did the men of our past do? And what did it cost them? And we look at them as heroes. So all of a sudden, things are becoming a little more real and popping out of the history book, and I'm starting to be challenged with the same thing that these men were challenged with back then. So continuing to to think about these things, is a doctrine like this supported by Scripture? There are a few things that we can look at here uh, just to, to continue on with his principles, he says it's not that you just, you just run in there and just refuse to obey the government. He says there are, are steps to this. He gives a lot of historical background, a lot of scriptural background, and he says step number one is, and he used some big words, make you sound really smart, remonstration. Okay, you should remonstrate first. I'm like, man, I don't even know if that sounds healthy. What is Remonstration. Okay, that is just to go to your authority and forcefully plead in protest, saying, please, governor so-and-so or congressman so-and-so, this is wrong. We cannot abide by this. We will not do this. Please, you've got to do something as an authority over us to battle this. So to very passionately go to that authority and plead with them We're going to look at some uh, historical illustrations later uh, that show this in process. Uh, Step two, Lord willing, that authority will then interpose. And interposition means to protectively stand between the oppressor and the oppressed. So if Randy's got a problem with Jacob, and Randy being the authority says, you know what, we're going to have to execute everybody that's got a salmon-colored shirt on, That's salmon, right? It's not pink. I don't know. Whatever. Um, Being another authority, I would, to do this, step in between Randy and Jacob and say, Randy, you're not going to do that. I'm not going to allow it. And I would protect those underneath me. Okay, That is the principle that he's saying. Remonstration is to go squawk about it, say this is wrong. We can't go along with this. But then the hope is that someone in the chain of command will interpose and say, I will not uphold this because it is A, morally wrong, or B, lawfully wrong. There are plenty of illustrations of that throughout history and the Bible as well. Then step number three, if you've got that situation where you've said something and uh, a leader with some guts steps in and said, I'm not going to allow this, step three is to, as the common people, support that official who is actually putting their neck on the chopping block, putting themselves in the way, and you back them up and don't let them go it alone. And then as a group, you resist. So he says about this, and here are your next couple of blanks, The doctrine of the lesser magistrates provides a legitimate and proper means to restore order and resist tyranny. History has proven that peasant revolts are easily put down by the state. The lesser magistrate doctrine is effective in quelling abuses by the higher authority and does not and excuse me and does so often without the shedding of blood. And that, my friends, is the goal, as we want to restore order when something is wrong, something is lawful or immoral. We want to restore order and restore right. So, to squawk about it, to have somebody step in the way and say, as an authority, I'm going to step in and I'm going to stop this, and we support that authority, the goal is to do so without bloodshed, without pain and suffering and loss. Now, how often does that really happen, though, on a grand national scale? It has, it is possible to go to these lengths, and to not have bloodshed. See, the magistrate element allows the, the resistance and the voice of the people to have structure and unity. Uh, as uh, the pastor Trujillo there mentioned that uh, peasant revolts don't work real well. It's disorganized Uh, it doesn't have clarity to its message, it's just people who are upset running around trying to do stuff, and that's pretty easy to squash as an organized government. But having a lesser magistrate, having somebody to to pull the people together, to give a voice, to give organization, it's a lot more effective, especially when you're just trying to go to the higher authorities and say, look, this is wrong, and I've got all these people behind me, who refuse to go along with this immoral or unlawful decree, you got a problem on your hands, so let's talk this out. There have been some wonderful illustrations, again, from history that we're going to look at going through that. So, again, I come back to, as great as this sounds, and I would love to see this happen in force in our nation, I'm just looking at that as a patriot, as somebody that loves my country, who wants to see right. I need to be careful and also look at this as a born-again Christian, first and foremost. Are these biblical concepts? And so, looking through scripture, I look at Exodus chapter 5, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10, and over and over again, I see Moses, and that's your next blank, Moses approached Pharaoh, on multiple occasions before the Exodus, that was the uh, illustration of remonstrating. He went to the government official and said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh said no, and God changed his mind, but Moses was going. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 through 16, Daniel and his friends decided to refuse the king's prescribed diet, and they approached, they remonstrated before. Uh, not only the prince of the eunuchs, the head guy in charge of them, but also one of the, the lower men, Melzar, they said, "Hey, change up our diet, Test us for 10 days." So they went and they proposed these things. The leadership listened to them. That's great. Things changed. Uh, we also see in First Samuel, verse 19, uh, ver, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 29, verse 32, verse 45 to 47. David willingly interposed for God's name and God's people. David did. He stepped in there in front of King Saul and said, I will go between Goliath and the name of God. I will go between Goliath and the children of Israel. When Saul's sorry butt should have been in there doing his job as king, but the leadership wouldn't, so somebody else stepped in and interposed. So we see things like that. Romans chapter five, verse six, Colossians two fourteen, Jesus interposed for sinful mankind. And I don't think I need to elaborate on the fact that Jesus stepped in between us and our punishment eternally. He's died on the cross for us. Daniel chapter 3, verse 14 to 18, the three Jewish boys refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image, accepting the consequences. They stood up and said, Sir, you are the authority, but we will not, because this goes against God. And they gladly accepted their their consequences. And we see what God did for them. That was amazing. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 through 16. When uh, the rulers of the land uh, conned the king into making a decree according to the, the Medes and the Persians law that no one was allowed to pray to anybody but him for the next number of days, Daniel went straight home, opened up his windows, and three times a day prayed to God. He openly defied the king's rules because they were immoral. They broke God's laws. He's like, I can't do it. Not going to do it, gladly accepted his consequences, Acts chapter four eighteen to twenty one The apostles refused to, uh, refused obedience to the sanhedrin, their church authority, in order to obey god 's command to evangelize. They were beaten for it, and they were happy to, to be persecuted for the name of Christ. These are multiple biblical examples, and these are only a few. These are just some of the famous ones where people said, no, this is an unjust law. They went to the authorities first. Or examples where somebody stepped in between and interposed. Or people that said, you know what? I just refuse to obey because it's not biblical and it's not right. I'll take my punishment. People who had thought and conviction and courage to do what needed to be done. So looking through scripture, yes, I see the principles that the the book is presenting. I see where you're going. These are definitely biblical principles. I would feel a lot better, though, having some more examples from history to to see how this actually plays out. So is there historical precedent? Actually, there's a lot. Um, And I'm very glad that uh, this pastor did a lot of historical research A.D. 39, and I'll have these blanks for you up on the screen. Caligula's image. Here's your blank. It's the word moved. Publius Petronius was a Roman official in uh, over Palestine, and this is right after the life of Christ. And the ruler in charge in Rome, uh, the Caesar, was a guy named Caligula. Guy thought he was God. Nutcase. And he says, "I want you, Petronius, to." Have a statue of me made, and I want you to park it right in the middle of the temple, the Jewish temple. Well, you know the Jewish people aren't having that. They were going nuts. They petitioned Petronius and said, we cannot let this happen. He's like, too bad. These are my orders. I have to follow them. And the Jews literally followed the guy to the next town. Like, talking 10,000 people. Parked themselves in the city square on their knees saying, Sir, kill us now. We will not live and let you do this. We would rather die than see you desecrate the temple of our God. Their pleas so moved the heart of Publius Petronius that he said, All right, I will go to Caesar on your behalf. And I just want you to know it's going to mean my neck. But if this is so important to you, I will put my neck on the line. So he wrote to Caesar and said, Sir, it is unjust what you're doing to these people, and I will not put that statue in the the temple. I just won't do it. Well, Caligula got so upset that he had immediate orders written saying, Petronius, you are ordered to commit suicide. The order was sent off by ship. But thankfully, there's another faster ship that came right behind it and outpaced it. See, right after he wrote those orders and sent them out, the Praetorian guard killed Caligula. He was assassinated by his own guard. And the the news that Caligula had been assassinated outpaced the first ship. So news got to Petronius first that Caligula was dead. (laughs) And then the ship got there saying, oh, by the way, you're supposed to kill yourself. So crinkle, crinkle, throw, I guess I don't have to. Yeah. The guy that ordered me to die is, uh, is dead. So it never happened. So here's an example of somebody that interposed for those underneath who remonstrated passionately, and God used it without bloodshed. Well, Caligula died. No loss there. So without the main people in, uh, in the situation having died, peace came, right was done. Uh, You go forward uh, 1,200 years, 1215 A.D., the signing of the Magna Carta. Now you're looking at a a historical event that are in a lot of history books, but not a lot goes behind why the Magna Carta was signed. So you've got, in England, uh, a lot of the Christian, by the way, Christian nobles standing up against the king, uh, King John, and saying, look, the stuff that you're telling these people to do is just wrong. It's hypocritical. And so these nobles got their armies together, fought at Runnymede, and kicked King John around, and he finally came to the negotiation table, signed the Magna Carta, which said, okay, fine, government's rule is not without limits, and even the, the governing class have to obey by the, abide by the rules. So because Christian men were willing to step up and go in between unjust leadership and the people, we have something so influential on the American Constitution as the Magna Carta. These are historical events of this situation. Uh, You go forward a couple, uh, 300 more years to A.D. 1550. This is a situation in Germany, uh, a town of Magdeburg. Magdeburg? I'm probably slaughtering that, obviously, I don't know how to say it in German, Magdeburg. Uh, This was a town that, as Charles V sent out a proclamation saying, all churches are supposed to return back to the control of the Roman Catholics. And you have a whole bunch of Protestant churches up there, like the Lutherans, uh, especially in Magdeburg, said, we're not doing that. We can't. All the other churches capitulated and said, no, we we must follow the dictates that we have learned from Scripture. We cannot go back to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And they said, nothing doing. So Charles V sent his armies to say, yes, you will. And they surrounded the town. So what happened was the leadership, the pastors of that town got together and said, we're going to resist you. But just so you know, we're going to write down our reasons for doing so. So they wrote down what is now known as the Magdeburg Confession. And it gave an explanation, number one, of scripturally why they believed what they believed. Now, as Lutherans, a lot of their stuff was off, but at least they had their reasons written down. Secondly, they explained that we cannot obey the king because that would mean we'd have to disobey God. And that's not biblical. We have to follow God, which, in order to do so, we've got to say no to you, King Charles. Sorry. Point number three is that, by the way, if you go against us and we've got God on our side, you're in trouble. And if there's any wimps out there who won't make a stand, you've got to stand accountable to God, too. So these guys were very, very specific in what they wrote. They said, look, we are, according to our Christian faith, the best citizens you have, but you are forcing us. To go against God, and we won't do it. So let us be good citizens. Repeal this this dictate of yours so that we can follow the Lord, and we will go back to being the best subjects that you have. So much of the the Magdeburg Confession uh, created the book uh, there by Pastor Trujillo. Then we go to History, that's a little more familiar to us. A.D. 1776, the American Revolution. The colonies, after remonstrating, sending officials and representatives over to the crown, saying, please, would you back off on all the the control on the the unjust economic things that you put upon us, of of stealing our homes to give them to troops, of, of the oppression that you're putting us under. The crown said, don't care, go back home, do what you're told. And so, as we know from our own history, the colonies banded together. After trying to plead with the crown, the officials stood in between the crown and the common man, and they fought it out. This is a very, very bloody example of what it looks like to try to win your own freedom, and it took seven years of war to do it. Again, we look at these men as being heroes because we now have a free country but you need to back up a few hundred years and see what these men went through to get to that conclusion. Can we put our livelihood on the line? Can we put our lives on the line, the lives of our children, our families, to fight against our God-given authority because our God-given authority is doing that which is unlawful and immoral? Man, that sounds great in a history book. That scares the Dickens out of me thinking about it in 2023. Even heading over to Romania here just a a couple of weeks ago and not knowing much about the Romanian Revolution of 1989, it surprised me. I started doing some reading up on it. And the Romanian Revolution uh, of not that long ago was basically where the communist government of Nicolae Ceausescu was oppressing the people. I mean, that's what communists do. They oppress the people. They squeeze everything out of them, give them just a little bit back to survive. And there was a Hungarian Orthodox pastor who was preaching out against all the unjust treatment of the Hungarian people there. And so the government, catching wind of this, started to lean on the Hungarian Orthodox Church and say, shut this guy up. Well, the church did as it was told, and they Uh, disrobed the guy basically and said, you lose your church, you lose your apartment, we're going to throw you out in the country, some little church where you can't cause such a problem. And when the Romanian secret police came to arrest this pastor, the church people surrounded his apartment and said, you're not getting in. And so the secret police saying, we can't get in there. What do we do? They're told just, well, just wait until they disperse. They didn't disperse all night long. And in fact, the crowd began to grow. Folks noticed that this crowd around this apartment, what are you here for? Well, this is what the government's doing. We're not letting them take our pastor. And so the townspeople started to add themselves to the group surrounding this pastor. And news continued to spread. More and more people of the city came in, and all of a sudden they had an uprising in their town. And all of a sudden, Ceaușescu started to get real nervous. He started to call in the military. He started to call in the police. He started to call in uh, factory workers from other towns, giving them clubs and say, go in and handle this uprising. And when those workers would get there and say, who are we supposed to beat? They'd start talking to people and say, oh, wait, you're resisting the government? And they would jump sides and join the resistance. And then as this become sadly more bloody the police realized this is wrong. And the police jumped ship. Then the military jump ship. They all became part of the resistance to the point where Ceaușescu and his wife were taking a helicopter and running for their lives. Well, they got tracked down a couple towns later and executed on Christmas Day, 1989. So we see when people see the unjust treatment of the common man, you can either sit there and be upset with it, you can complain about it, Or you can try to pursue change. Now, how do you do that? Well, you start by remonstrating, squawking about it, say, Will you guys stop doing what you're doing? Lord willing, uh, an official will come in and go to bat for you, and then you've got somebody to lead the charge and to support. And past that, well, it just depends on the authority. Will they back down and do right, or is it going to come to blows? Folks, this is world history. This is what it is for sinners who are given an authoritative structure to succeed when they go outside of those boundaries and they hurt each other and they try to strive for control. It comes to impasses like this. It comes to very difficult situations. So the more I look at this, the more nervous it makes me, to be very honest, because I would love to sit here and tell you, Man, I, I want to be a patriot like our forefathers. But if I'm serious about that, that means I'm going to have to pay the same kind of price that my forefathers are willing to pay. That means I had better have the backing and blessing of God that this is what I am supposed to do. Because you can't walk into that and then run tail because you didn't really think your way through it. Because when the cost hits, all of a sudden, oh, I give up. You can't. If you're going to do it, you do it. But you've got to make sure you've got God on your side as a born-again Christian. And that's why I've struggled with this for the last two weeks. I've read through that book. I've reread a lot of sections of it. I've done a lot of honest thinking. And I want to have more conversations about this because it scares me. I see what's happening to my country. I give you, uh, or gave you a whole bunch of quotes from the book that bring out a lot more aspects of this topic that I've not addressed. That as a government gets worse and worse and it actually begins to allow evil, then that evil will develop. Uh, Anybody catch the uh, recent gay pride support at the White House? Folks, that's what we're talking about. Like, no, that would never happen. Folks, it just happened. It's wild. Nobody would have ever imagined that kind of Approved of evil on display at our very capital. It's because a number of years ago, our government said it is now legal to have gay marriages. They put their stamp of approval on evil when it used to be illegal. And now our country said, well, I guess that's okay then. And they're running with it full tilt. Folks, that's why we've killed. 65 plus million American babies. Because whereas our country used to say that's illegal, we're going to preserve innocent human life. Now the government said it's allowable, which is the same as saying it has a stamp of approval. And now it's a full-blown business. States are rising up saying, no, not here, which I'm encouraged by. There are government officials who are interposing at certain levels but let's be realistic folks this is going to keep heating up and as the church of God we are not just patriots because God has blessed us with this amazing country to be born and live in we've got to think of this from a biblical standpoint as well because the decisions in front of us are terrifying let's just be honest because they're now realistic it's coming out of a history book and it's starting to to look like it'll affect my life So we've only got about five minutes, so I really don't know how far you can get uh, reading through those quotes or getting to your group work. Uh, The two questions in front of you, why do many Christians hold a position that completely submits to every command law or ruling of the state and local government? There are Christians who do because they look at Romans 13 and say, well, you're not allowed to to push against your God-given authority. But not realizing that there are boundaries that ought to be resisted. In your own words, how would you summarize the doctrine of lesser magistrates to somebody that's never heard of it? Because a lot of people have never thought this far into the topic. And we need our populace to do so again, because we need our populace to be able to do something productive. But you can't. If you're uneducated on the topic, you can't come to the place where you have a conviction if you don't have a strong conviction about it you're never going to stay the course and do what's productive that's why i honestly believe that the bible has been removed from our educational system and satan has attacked our churches so much so that we are scared to do what god may be leading us to do but again more conversations need to be had there's a lot of food for thought don't want to be a downer, but I do want to be realistic, folks, because this is the world we live in. So if you got some questions or comments you'd like to make, uh, I will be up front here for as long as you need me to be. Uh, like I said, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I am learning some things, but I need some good wisdom to, to bounce off of uh, godly individuals. So let's have a closing word of prayer, and we will dismiss tonight. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for teaching us how to know you, to be close to you, to be guided by you so that we can look at the, the world around us, look at our lives and know how to act. God, there are some scary things in front of us and I know that you are in control. I praise you for that, God. Uh, without that comfort, I would be scared out of my mind for my kids. But Lord, knowing that all things are going to work for your glory in the end, I'm very, very thankful. I just ask that you would help us to know, help me specifically to know what I'm supposed to do during these times. God, I don't want to be negligent uh, in my home. I don't want to be negligent in my church, but I also don't want to be negligent in my country. You've blessed me by putting me here, and I want to make sure that I am affecting it according to your guidance god help us all help our church to be faithful and uh, to know what you'd have us to do father help us uh, to encourage each other and get to that place i know we don't do this alone we do it as a body so i thank you for your guidance i thank you for your word and for your spirit i ask this please for your honor and glory in christ's name amen